Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, welcome uh, those of you who are in line. Uh, go ahead, keep eating. We're here to feed you. And uh, those of you who are eating, keep eating. It's okay, too. We're going to talk and let you eat at the same time. But uh, let me welcome you to our uh, second student dinner of the semester. Uh, Brittany Underwood is here, and we're going to have a little video that's going to introduce her in a second. And we're really pleased that you could be here to hear about, is it a cola? Is that how you I say it? Yeah. Okay. And... Uh, um, and I'm looking forward to this because this is this is kind of an out of the box uh, little thing. And the first question I'm going to ask her will make it clear how out of the box it is. Um, but let me tell you about some of the other events that, that uh, are coming at the Hendricks Center in uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to be having a, uh, a Wives of Men in Ministry event, and and that is April 10th to 12th. Uh, and that retreat is at, Con at Pine Cove. So uh, if any of you are wives of men in ministry and, and want to know about that, um, you can contact the center and we'll let you know. And then on April 23rd in Houston, we have a faith and work conference. Uh, that will be held at First Baptist Church in Houston. This is our annual faith and work conference that we take around the country. We were in Dallas a couple of years ago. Uh, the plan is to be in Chicago with that conference next year. And then the two conferences, this, this will be the first time you've heard of, about these. Two conferences that we have uh, sitting in front of us for next year are, we're going to have a conference called Brave New World. Uh, and Russell Moore uh, of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, Ethics Commission is going to be our main speaker. He's actually going to be here for two days. He's going to do the conference with us on Monday, and then he'll be at a chapel on Tuesday as well, a cultural engagement chapel. Uh, so we're holding on to him. Uh, he's uh, certainly a leading voice in terms of uh, Christian engagement with culture, and that conference will focus on, on cultural engagement very, very directly. And then in the in the spring, we're holding a conference. The Systematic Theology Department's going to hold a conference on eschatology, but it's not a prophecy conference. Uh, it is a conference on how eschatology matters for life in the present. So the tent working title that we have for this one, it's not necessarily going to be what we end up calling it, is Back from the Future. And, uh, and so uh, we're going to be toying with uh, how, thinking about our security in Christ, how that impacts uh, the way we conduct our lives now. So that's kind of the lineup. And of course, you know we do four cultural engagement uh, chapels every semester. We have a couple, we'll have a couple of dinners as well, but we haven't lined up what we're doing with those yet. So uh, just keep your eyes and ears open for what the, the center is doing. Um, so with that as kind of our introduction, we actually have a video that we're going to use to introduce the evening. And so we can show that now, and that will get you oriented to what we're doing. Oops. The first week that I was in Uganda, a pastor noticed my discomfort. I had never been out of my comfort zone. I had never been in a developing country. And he told me that he wanted me to meet a woman, Ugandan woman, that he thought would inspire me. So he led me up the hill. 
to a small shack on the outskirts of Uganda's capital city, Kampala, and introduced me to a woman named Sarah. And Sarah was not but three years older than I was. She basically devoted her entire life to caring for street kids who had come through her village. She was an orphan herself. She didn't have the money to provide for them, but she could offer them shelter, so she opened up her home. It just changed my entire perspective, and I thought maybe there's something I can do to help. I partnered with Sarah to build an orphanage home for the 24 kids that were sleeping on her floor. Initially, we thought we would just build a you know, small building so the kids could have um, a home, and in the next year, it turned into an orphanage home for 180 kids. He started the Ecola Project to empower women to uplift the lives of their families and communities through economic development. So we work with community leaders to identify women who are the most marginalized in their communities, who have the most dependence and the least support. And then we go out and build the infrastructure in these rural villages. We drill clean water wells, we build vocational training centers, and then we spend five to six years training these women to make the beautiful products we sell here at the Ecola Project. People see Brittany's enthusiasm and want to be involved because of her. She has just this contagious love for life and an undying passion for these women and children. Over the past 10 years, thousands of lives have been touched by her passion and her compassion. This year we've been working with Roslyn and the Dallas Women's Foundation to expand our model to Dallas to offer an economic alternative to women who've been trafficked. Here at Ecola, we're trying to create a product line that is both made by but also fully benefits marginalized women in war-torn regions in northern Uganda, women in eastern Uganda who've experienced the HIV AIDS epidemic, and women here in Dallas who've been sexually trafficked. For other young leaders who are facing the challenges of building an organization, my advice would be faith tenacity, perseverance, and dedication. It's these qualities that will set you apart and allow you to achieve the vision and dreams you have for other women. I'm Brittany. Well, there you go. That, yeah. You're Brittany Underwood. <laughs> well, Brittany, a uh, pleasure to have you with us. And uh, what's a nice girl from Atlanta mm -hmm. doing, living in Dallas and working in Uganda? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I did not set out to do any of this. I um, actually had just um, started really growing in my faith in college, and I went to this um, this forum in D.C. and they talked about you know a great way to grow in your faith is to pick a couple friends and just learn how to love each other for the summer um, and grow in community. And I took that seriously and. Two friends of mine from high school, we just decided to pick a place in the world and spend the summer there and really just focus on our friendships. And hmm. we ended up in Uganda because um, one of my friends, her father, was the executive director of World Harvest hmm. Ministry, and they had a boarding school that needed teachers for the summer. And hmm. so I honestly didn't know where Uganda was on the map. I just <laughs> signed up, and next thing I knew, we were in a rural village in East Africa, and that's where it all began. Now, what year was this? This was 2004. Okay, so so you went and, uh, as the uh, video indicated, you were deeply impacted by the experience. How long did it take from that to to what you ended up doing in Uganda? 
Yeah, I actually had a really terrible attitude. I um, I was really sick from the very beginning. I was really uncomfortable. I had never been, um, I'd never witnessed extreme poverty in, mm-hmm. in the way that I saw it in Uganda. And actually about two weeks in, and I mentioned this in the video, but we were um, kind of learning about the community and a local pastor could tell that I wasn't totally engaged and I think he just wanted to inspire me. So he said, you know, I want you to meet a woman um, who just has a really powerful story. She's a member of our community and I, th- I think her story will inspire you and mm. said, why not? And um, this woman changed really the course of my life. Mm-hmm. She just um, had trusted God with the lives of 24 street children, had no way to provide for them, um, but gave everything she had so they could live. And I thought two things, one, here I am, someone who's been given a lot I haven't given anything for anyone else to live, mm-hmm. and she's you know sharing her daily bread um, and going hungry mm-hmm. for others. And then also here's someone who can trust God for the lives of 24 street kids. I c- can barely do that for myself. And mm-hmm. so um, that moment, um, kind of a seed was planted, and that grew for the rest of the summer. And I actually went to study abroad after that in Italy, which is quite a shift um, at SMU. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I broke my leg. There's a crazy story. I ended up back in um, in Atlanta with really nothing to do except for to think about this woman, mm-hmm. Sarah, the kid sleeping on her floor. So it really started as just a small effort. Um, I thought I would just send a couple hundred dollars over and they could buy some beans and she could send her kids to school. And um, that grew into this idea of building a building for the kids that slept on her floor. And next thing I knew, they had um, a sponsorship arm and come in and they needed a really big building. And so somehow in the span of, from my sophomore year of college to my senior year of college, um, I somehow found myself raising, um, we raised close to a million dollars for a three-story orphanage Hmm. um, with the capacity to house 200 children in Sarah's village. And that's when I moved to Uganda. Oh, wow. Well, let's let's go through that part of the story because it's an interesting part of the story. So you're raising millions of dollars as a college student for this effort. How how in the world did that happen? (laughs) Well, I was lucky I was in Dallas. That helped. Um, I I just had friends actually through Young Life. Um, I was a Young Life leader mm. um, for Highland Park High School and um, just met a lot of great people in our city and a lot on of the great, North Dallas board. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah they're amazing yeah, there you and a go. lot of great yep. families. And yep. they heard what I was doing and said, you know, we'd love to help you through a fundraiser. Um, I did that here through one in Atlanta. Um, had this short promotional video. I was a journalism major at SMU. Mm-hmm. I edited this nine minute video that you know, kind of told Sarah's story Mm -hmm. and the kids' stories. And the video got out and checks came in the mail from people we had never met. Um, We had a great board. They helped us raise a lot of the money. So soon, I mean, I I was graduating from SMU and I thought, I've got to move over there to make sure this building actually (laughs) happens. All these people gave us money. I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess I have to go. And um, I had three friends who put their post-college jobs on hold Mm -hmm. and moved over there and um, helped me get that off the ground over the next several years. So so how long were you in Uganda to move over yeah. there to the building? So we moved over there late 2006, mm-hmm. um, and I was back and forth, but there for the majority of the time until 2010 when mm-hmm. I went to Fuller. Okay, so four, four full years in Africa? Yeah, um, close to five. Wow. Um, yeah. Now, so I guess the next question is, you're married now and have a child, so how does that come into the mix yeah it's um it's interesting so i actually um 
my husband, there's this crazy story and um, how God just kind of takes care of you through all this. I thought, great, I spent most of my 20s in an East African village. I'm never going to get married, and that's something I'm just <laughs> surrendering to the Lord. And um, I met my husband, actually, at my first fundraiser here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, his family was one of our supporters, and he was a couple years older than I was at the time. And um, we ended up reconnecting um, when I finished my degree at Fuller. And um, we got married, and I moved back to Dallas in Nicola, which I'll talk about how the orphanage kind of turned into a social business. Yep. Um, but after that, um, I started spending, you know, every three months I would go to Uganda and told him, I have a house here. He was like, what? <laughs> we were <laughs> engaged, and I uh-huh. built this house out of local materials in uh-huh. the Nile near where the women work. And so he knew early on this is part of what our family's doing, and he was bought into that. And um, we have really, you know, we have a nine month old, so it's hard to take him mm-hmm. at this time, but I still try to go once every six months. Um, when he was six months old, I went for 10 days, and it's hard to leave him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, we hope it's, you know, something that these women are part of my life. We had a, my husband and I got married in one of the villages we work in, all of the women were there, and that I've worked with over the years. And I just, you know, the hope is our families fully integrated in what we do so that, I think that's how it works that's cool so so you were so you go every three months what happens when you go over there what what, what do you end up doing when you're over there yeah so um, I used to do everything so there was only you know four of us mm-hmm. and so we had to do everything and um, we really built this from the ground up first with the orphanage and then with Ecola mm-hmm and now, um, and then we went through a stage where I'd have to fly over there every time there was a fire, which was all the time. We were putting out fires. And mm. then we, we got to the place around 2013 mm-hmm. where we had been operating for you know seven years and had a great staff. We, our, CO, our COO in Uganda came over. We stole her from Jane Goodall and mm-hmm. she was running all of her women's empowerment programs. And um, she's you know better leader than I am, mm-hmm. knows more than I do about economic development. and. Um, totally trust her so now she runs our staff of 30 in Uganda and I just go there because I miss the women <laughs> so I'm kind of irrelevant at this point but I just like to be there huh. now let's talk about the transition from the orphanage to the to the company and um, why don't you explain how the company itself works and I'm assuming a cola means something am yeah. I right about that okay so what does yeah. Akola mean Akola means she works okay so we you know we spent several years building this huge orphanage um but we were working with a construction company so we're essentially just paying construction payments Mm -hmm. um so we started doing a lot of other stuff during that time we had someone um give us a pretty large grant to drill clean water wells across the country so we Mm -hmm. thought we're just paying you know this contractor we might as well do other things so we started drilling these clean water wells around uganda and it was there we just keep we go into all these different villages and it was the same story there's so many women like sarah who had 20 street kids sleeping on their floor no way to provide for them and we just started to realize there's got to be a more sustainable way to address the orphan crisis mm-hmm. and be able to provide for disadvantaged children you can't just build 60 million dollar orphanage structures around the country i mean that's not going to solve the problem and it's not sustainable and it's expensive and there's a lot of issues with that model period Mm -hmm. i mean it's a really antiquated model that we don't use here for a reason so we just learned a lot along the way and once we finished the building we thought you know i wonder if there's a better way to do this Mm -hmm. and so we started the ecola project in 2007 with the intention of working with other women like sarah who had street kids, an average of 10 kids was mm. kind of our metric, um, living in their home, no way to provide for them, and no way to earn income. Kids weren't in school, weren't getting proper nutrition. And we thought if we could just 
help build capacity for these women. Mm-hmm. You know, all, they have the heart. They're mm-hmm. already taking care of these kids. They just need the money to send them to school and some basic tr- training and, um, you know, and, and they should be able to handle this. These kids don't have to go to an orphanage mm-hmm. home. And so we, we started a COLA um, for that purpose with 15 women working under a mango tree. And we said, well, in order for the women to make money, we've got to create some some kind of business or mm-hmm. product and um we you know looked at a lot of local um programs that we could do and it just i mean these women are cut off from the global economy mm-hmm. these women are that we work with are in very rural villages um barely have roads you know that that are functioning um women in northern uganda who've survived the 20-year war up there and conflict um and we thought i think you know we we need to create a product, something mm-hmm. that we could market and sell that we know can fund mm-hmm. these women so they can take care of their kids. And so we picked jewelry, honestly, because it was easy to ship. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. like our first, we're like, this is easy, it's small. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I went to SMU, so I know a lot of people who um, have good fashion mm-hmm. sense, and we knew, had a lot of friends who are designers and thought that would be something we could we could build. And so we, um, kind of in 2007, 2008, set out to build this business to support the women. Hmm. Now, uh, I'm trying to figure out exactly how I want to ask this question. The, the, uh, the, how did, you went from jewelry, and how, how, exactly does that, how exactly does this work? In other words, um, how, how does, how, what's the model that you're using to, to sustain these women? Yeah, so we developed it. Um, we kind of started grassroots trial and error, figuring out what worked, what didn't. Um, we quickly realized we actually have to build the infrastructure for economic opportunity mm-hmm. because we work in villages where there's not a tin roof. There's nowhere for women to work. And it's, you know, once the business starts growing, it's not sustainable for them to work under a mango tree. And it doesn't give them a lot of dignity. And so we started building centers, mm-hmm. um, training centers around the country. Um, and then the next thing we do is once we've built a center and we accompany that with clean water wells, you know, mm-hmm. really building the infrastructure that they need for economic opportunity and once we do that, we train women who are not artisans, women with no educational, mm-hmm. vocational background um, to make the products that we sell in the global marketplace. We design them. Um, we create high fashion products. And part of that is um, it can't be a charity purchase. You know, mm-hmm. We're working with 500 women mm-hmm. whose livelihood depends on our ability to sell this product. And so um, we learned pretty early on um, to do a good job in that area. So we started um, retailing our product around the US. We've been sold in 450 stores around the country, um, to one department store, potentially another specialty store um, this fall, and um, large accounts with Tom's and Medivani, and um, been able to you know, offer the women dependable employment because the product sold well. So once the women have dependable employment, they're able to provide for the 10 kids in their home, and we were able to set a metric where they made enough money to not only send the women who are working full-time all of their kids to school, provide for their health care, rebuild their homes, but also invest in local businesses and their communities. Because once these women realize, gosh, we're capable, mm-hmm. they have dignity, um, they have opportunity, they want to do more. Mm-hmm. And so instead of using microloans for them to start small businesses, we just train them to save the money a portion of the money they would earn through us to invest in these businesses and kind of walked alongside of them and um, launched a series of you know 
classes in finance and business and to really help them be successful. And we believe that really helps drive sustainability for generations to come, whether we're there for five years, 10 years, one year, mm-hmm. um, they're investing that money in, in long-term solutions for the community. Now, some people might not know what a microloan is. Can you explain what that yeah, is? Yeah, so microloan is just a small loan mm-hmm. um, to um, normally a disadvantaged population. Um, and we, we really serve women who are kind of a rung below um, candidates for, for microfinance. Hmm. Like, our women would not know to get a loan. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have the confidence to do it. They wouldn't have, um, yeah, they really wouldn't have the confidence. And hmm. so after going through a COLAS program, um, these women have become candidates for loans. We have women who um, have worked with us for seven years who've run for local office. Hmm. And again, these are women who could barely look you in the eyes when we first started working with them. They were so severely marginalized. Hmm. Um, and now, you know, their kids are in school, their communities are functioning, they're um, kind of injecting, infusing capital into a traditional barter economy. So now, you know, the local brick maker who never got paid for his bricks gets Mm -hmm. money. So he sends his kids to school. So we've seen entire communities. We work in nine of them, um, just totally transformed this model. It's Hmm. been really exciting. Now some social questions. Um, the orphans, where, where do they, where do they come from? Is this because of of war or a common, Mm -hmm. a disease combination of the above? All, you know, where, and then are the women, uh, I take it they're they're widows themselves in many cases, and or or something like that. Yeah, so Uganda's polygamous country, mm-hmm. um, so there's a lot of women who are left um, with kids with mm-hmm. no help um, all over, especially in rural communities um, where men generally move to the city to get a job. So you don't see that many men in these communities. People are always ask like, do the men get mad? Where are they? There's mm-hmm. there's not a lot of them around um, and the ones that are there are very supportive um, and we also um, provide opportunity for them through building our centers. We always employ local men, use local labor and that's a way that they get involved in these projects and earn an income. Um, but yeah, these are women who, um, you know, who've been through war mm-hmm. 20 years and we have women whose children were abducted by the LRA and um, forced into sexual s- slavery and um, some forced into becoming child soldiers. We have women whose, you know, majority of their family members have died of HIV AIDS and um, they're survivors of that. And a lot of times the orphans come from the community. And that's why orphanages don't make that much sense. Mm-hmm. Um, because in these communities, everyone knows who the orphan kids are. Mm-hmm. There's not like a random kid that comes along and, you know, you know I mean, they, these are very interconnected communities. And generally the orphan kids come from, you know, the father leaves, the mom generally contracts HIV AIDS. I mean, a fourth of the women we work with are tested positive. Mm. I would guess probably half of them are. Um, She passes away. She's got four kids. They go to her sister. Mm -hmm. Something happens to her sister. Her sister has three kids too. The grandmother takes them. And next thing you know, I mean, there's 10 dependents. So really how it's worked out for the women we work with, the average is 10 dependents, um, seven children and two adult dependents and um, all of them fully rely on the mother to care for them and she has no way to provide wow what a story um so, so um you talked about child soldiering people don't know what that is either why don't you explain what a child soldier yeah, is so there's um a 20-year conflict um 25-year conflict in northern uganda where i don't know if any of you are familiar with the lord's resistance army i know invisible children made a lot of that um, kind of public, but um, child soldiers is when um, 
there's an internal conflict or external conflict in the country and um you know the world warlords come in and they i mean it's the most horrific things hearing these stories from um the ground and on our in our project in northern uganda but i mean they would come in and burn down a village and kill parents um in front of their children they tie the children up make them watch i mean human mutilation to, Mm. to a degree that it's just it's hard to even talk about but they the children would watch that and know they had nowhere to go back to so they take them they would become part of this army um they give them guns and drugs and god knows what else Mm -hmm. um and next thing you know the child had become sort of a mercenary Mm. um and so you know that war is essentially over i mean it's disbanded Mm -hmm. um but the remnants of it are, I mean, it's disaster. And the age of these children, what might be? Now they're like, I mean, on average, probably 15. We, we work with a lot of the mothers mm-hmm. of child soldiers. Um, but, um, and some never came back. Hmm. Some of their kids never came back and hmm. some did. And they were lucky to escape with their lives. And we work in the Pade district in Pajule, which is one of the hardest hit areas um, in the war. And, they're still rebuilding. They were living in internally displaced camps because the government tried to protect them. The camps would um, get attacked, mm-hmm. which it wasn't a very safe place for them. And then once the conflict, um, they started negotiating kind of peace treaties in 2007. It's been kind of rocky since then, but they moved people to satellite camps and now they're kind of moving back to their ancestral homes. So in our project in northern Uganda, we really focus on that um, kind of that rebuilding effort and mm. by helping the women generate income and learn these kind of soft and hard skills, and we're hoping they'll be able to get back on their feet. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. That's quite a story. Now, we've got microphones set up so that you all can ask questions as I continue to work with this. So where, where are you today in terms of, uh, in terms of the, you know, uh, how, many, how many, you said you're in nine different areas, is that? Did I nine that? different communities. Nine different yeah. communities. Mm-hmm. And the size of these communities, what are, what are, what are, what's the si- average size of these villages, it can depends. you say? It depends. I mean, our Buala village, we work with uh, close to 100 women mm-hmm. in that village, and um, Chibibi is 30, 40 women. Um, or because I mean, all these tiny little villages along the Nile and then in northern Uganda. And then we also expanded to Dallas. So we work with women here who've been um, formerly um, incarcerated or sexually trafficked. And they work in our distribution center. And we teach them kind of hard skills to help hmm. them get back on their feet, help them get a job when their criminal history normally wouldn't allow for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have production. So we have women in West Dallas who actually string the beads on the necklace that um, are made in Uganda and for sale here. And 
a big thing about sort of our model is we run everything through a nonprofit framework. So mm-hmm. we're, our organizational structure is a nonprofit with a mission related enterprise, same as Goodwill. That's mm-hmm. probably another equivalent to our, um, but that means a hundred percent of our profits are reinvested in our social mission. So when you buy an Ecola necklace, not only is it every bead on the necklace empowering women, the assembly empowers and employs women, the distribution empowers and employs women, but also all the money goes back to that mission. So it's a really high impact. Okay. Now this is a fun question to ask. And that is, um, take us through the start to the finish of a piece of jewelry. uh, Where does it, where does it begin and how does it end? And what is it that the women over there are doing? And what is it the women over here are doing? That kind of thing. So I'll use an example, one of our department store orders last year, and the, how it was produced is we had women in you know, six villages hand-rolling paper beads, um, and we, once they, um, we sold them the paper, they rolled the beads, we buy them back, and that's kind of our part-time workers. They kind of make the core components of the necklace. We also have women who hand-cut Anacoli cowhorn, um, among many other things. So there's, um, they kind of make the components of the necklaces and that money goes back to paying school fees for their kids. And then it's assembled by either, um, our assembly team, which is our full-time workers in Uganda, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, based in Jinja in Eastern Uganda or the women here in mm-hmm. West Dallas. Um, it's kind of interchangeable. Some mm-hmm. stuff is produced there. Some, some's here even in the same order. And then it's distributed by women who've been referred to us by new friends, new life, who are, have been mm-hmm. formerly incarcerated, sexually yep. trafficked, trying to get back on their feet. And they, That's a local organization. They, yeah. yeah. And they send us women who are ready to work and right. fully rehabilitated from their program. Our, our West Dallas women are also referred to us by mm-hmm. um, nine other nonprofits in our city mm-hmm. who've worked with women and want them to kind of get back on their feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also partnering with Buckner, who's doing the case management for all of our women. So mm. we really, here in Dallas, just focus on the training and employment, whereas in Uganda, we do a whole suite of programs around their employment called Ecola Academy. Mm-hmm. So this business classes, um, wellness, um, yeah, a, a, just series of classes to help their development. But here, we're able to rely on partners for that. So relative size, how many how many women are you working with in, in Uganda, and how many women are employed here? Yeah, so around um, 450 women in Uganda. Mm-hmm. And here, we just started our dial, Dallas pilot last year with 15 women, and I think we're, we're going to be at 30 in the next couple weeks, hopefully, mm. and um, we're hoping to grow to 100 in the next two years. So we just partnered with United Way, here in Dallas, and they're helping us reach capacity here. So you're rolling and going, huh? Yeah, it's busy, <laughs> it's busy. And and you become a mom in the meantime. Yes, I have a nine month old. Oh, so yeah. yeah, it's it's a busy, and I teach a course on social innovation at SMU. <laughs> so I'm teaching, working, and have a nine month old, which has been an exciting balancing act. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll we'll talk about the counseling yeah. part of this later. <laughs> um, so. Um, so, so wrap it up for us. What do you feel like you've you've learned in going through this experience? As you said, this isn't this isn't at all what you thought you when you took that initial trip to no. Uganda. This wasn't on the this wasn't in the plans. Oh, no. Yeah. And so, uh, um, what 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 would you regard as some of the turning points that you, that you mm-hmm. saw that you see? I mean, besides the obviously the initial experience. Yeah, I after um, working on the ground, sort of building what a cola is today um those first five years i mean we were burned so bad i mean we were cheated we were lied to we were threatened we made every mistake in the book and um 
I got to the point where I was so burned out and I was so tired and just thinking like, Lord, what am I even doing? We've probably done more harm than help in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, I'm sick, I'm tired. (laughs) My friends are getting married and I'm in the middle of nowhere. You got, and just like really became disillusioned. And I actually had a, a former professor of mine at SMU who was on our board who said, um, I think you need to take a break to kind of get, you know, retool and Mm -hmm. um, look at your model and take a step back and um, work on your heart and, um, you know, kind of figure out why you're doing this. And it was, that's when I went to Fuller Mm. uh, Seminary in Pasadena and did my master's in intercultural studies, international development, um, studied under Bryant Myers, who I really respect kind of his development theories and theology. And it was, um, it was at that time that I, um, I actually, my best work came Mm. from that. We were able to take, kind of just by taking a pause, Mm -hmm. all of the good things and bad things that we had done and experienced over that kind of first five years I I was in Uganda in my early 20s, able to form a a real model Mm -hmm. out of that. A model for social business is actually crazy. It's in a McGraw-Hill textbook now, which is nuts. Um, (laughs) But we, I I formed it there. And, And part of that was taking a step back and, kind of learning more about international development, studying it after I had experienced it and taking, again, my experience from the ground and really, you know, thinking it through, dissecting it, figuring out, you know, what can we do better? Um, how can we serve these people better? And, but another piece was my heart, you know, why am I doing this? You know, what, where is God in the midst, midst of suffering? You mm-hmm. know, like I, there's a lot of things that I wrestled with coming out of that. And I was able to resolve a lot of that, um, just by taking a step back for two years at Fuller. And once I finished my degree there and came back here to Dallas, that's when Ecola really took off mm-hmm. in 2013. So I think one of the best lessons in this is, just um having the courage to like take a pause Mm -hmm. sometimes um and the courage to fail and i mean i really look at the building that we did the orphanage structure i'm glad we did it i know god was in it but um it's it's not a great model Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways it was a failure in Mm -hmm. my mind at least um from a development perspective and how it's serving those children it's not doing that very well and we have no control over it Mm -hmm. um we didn't even put the title in our name because we didn't know better at the Mm -hmm. time and so i mean there was a lot of ways we failed and i think i had a mentor right before i went to fuller who said to me you know i said why i'm just leaving like Mm -hmm. i don't even know why we came or I'm just confused about the whole thing. And I feel like, again, we've hurt more than helped. And I said, I'm out of here. And he said, that's a problem with people in your generation. You know, things (laughs) get hard and you bail and you go to something else. He goes, I really challenge you. Um, Everyone who comes here, it doesn't matter if they have a PhD Mm -hmm. in international development, um, you're going to fail at first. Mm -hmm. Probably the first five years you're here, you're going to do a lot of harm. But if you can take the lessons that you learned from that, Mm -hmm. then the next 50 years, Mm -hmm. you'll you'll really be able to help. And um, he said, I challenge you to commit to this country. And I took that pause and I did. And now 12 years later, I mean, we're really paving the way for social businesses and have hit a scale that most organizations haven't and have been able to show that you can do that through a nonprofit framework where all of it goes back and you can do that with faith and integrity. And it's been an incredible journey, but I could have very easily given up, you know, every year, mm-hmm. you know, along the way until the past couple of years when things really took off. And, um, I guess some really good advice is take a pause when you need to pause, have the courage to fail and to face that and just learn from, you know, your experience and make it better. 
Now, I, I, maybe a question is, has the church itself or churches themselves played any role in this? What, what, what's been their yeah. part of the story? So the women we work with in Uganda are main, predominantly Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, we work in, it's sort of animist Christianity. It's, there's a lot of things mixed in on a village folk level. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the m- women we work with are mainly Christian. And so we've um, been able to kind of, I've learned a lot from them in my mm-hmm. faith. And we've been able to walk alongside of them and kind of share our stories and, and faith. Um, and that's been sort of the spiritual part of this journey. Um, we've had churches um, all along the way partner with us. We have some of the bigger churches in Dallas that support us and have from the very beginning. And um, But we also have you know, organizations like United Way that are not faith-based um, supporting us. And that's always been important to us in the very beginning is that we, um, we wanted everyone to be a part of this journey. And my faith has informed this whole process. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, everything that I do um, and the women's faith has transformed my life. Um, mm. They've taught me more than I could ever give to them. Um, but we, we wanted to create a company that um, anyone could be a part of it. Mm. And that's, that's been really beneficial. And we've had some people challenge us and say, well, why aren't you a faith-based organization? You said it's coming from that. And, um, and what we say is, I mean, God's working in every part of this Mm -hmm. every day through our staff, through the women, um, in ways that are hard for me to even describe. And so we haven't had to necessarily have like a ministry component to make it, um, to make it what we feel like is honoring to God. Now we may have some people out here who are thinking about, uh, what they, uh, are thinking about the possibilities of doing something like this, um, what advice would you give them? Yeah, um, if you're doing a social enterprise, your products really matters. You cannot create a charity purchase that doesn't go a long way. People buy a little bit of it, but it'll never grow to scale. And to really serve people well through a social business or social enterprise, you have to run the business well, and you need a great product. And you can't, um, yeah, you you, you can't, do it without that. So yeah. I think um, from from that angle, I would say really work on your product mm-hmm. um, and on your business model and tap into things like social finance, impact investing, all of these great new philanthropic tools that um, are brand new in our generation, help fund these kind of ventures in ways that were never possible before. Um, advice interpersonally, again, yeah, don't be afraid to fail. And you learn from that. And as long as you take those lessons, you can create something really beautiful um, out of your experience. And um, that would be sort of the interpersonal piece. And also just realizing like God has a different plan for everyone's life. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I wasn't someone who grew up in like wanting to change the world or something. You know, I mm-hmm. just wanted to be faithful. And um, I took step by step, you know, small steps of faith that has, have led to something really big, but that was never the intention. And it would have been okay if it didn't grow to the scale. Mm-hmm. And we did, you know, the orphanage structure learned from that. And God called me just to be a mom. Like that would have been just as beautiful as, as what a coal has become. And so I think also um, a lot of people say, well, I want to do, that's so cool. I want to do this. And, and that's great. And I think it's great to set out to do it. But I think also just to look at your life and look right in front of you, like what has God put in front of you? Who has he put in front of you mm-hmm. and being faithful to that. And I think that's when big things happen as they grow out of that. Now, as you were growing this business, uh, how, how much role did foundations play in helping you out? You, I, you mentioned fundraisers, but mm-hmm. was there foundational support as well? Some family foundations in the beginning, I mean, almost like any venture in the very beginning, mm-hmm. they were friends and of, you know, our family or friends through young life or, um, 
you know, individual donors who just invested in me mm-hmm. and in this idea. I mean, they hoped that it would work out, but mm-hmm. they trusted our heart and vision for it. And that's all they really had in a small video. Um, but as we've grown, we mainly get our support through foundations now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's something you kind of earn over time. Mm-hmm. You know, once your organization gets to a point where you have a proven impact model and theory of change and you're able to measure it, um, and you have a track record, that's when um, foundation money is accessible and important. So, so that's basically how you're generating your, your ability to, to well, sustain the operation. Through foundations, but we also do a lot of impact investing. So um, I don't know if many of you are familiar with kind of these new tools with social finance, but there's this sort of big bang in the philanthropic world where capital markets which didn't normally interact Mm -hmm. with um giving um there's sort of this convergence um where foundations now are willing to out of their endowment fund give impact investments in the form of low interest loans and if you're a for-profit social impact company they'll do equity investments and that's where we've been able to get the real funding to scale so Mm -hmm. if we have a purchase order for ten thousand units and Mm -hmm. that costs a lot to make right we got a half million dollar impact investment last year for this department store order we're able to um you know put that into our product and we end up making five times that amount of money for our programs and the women um but would never have been able to do it without that and that was basically structured as a low interest loan with a 5% return from a foundation and give us the money we needed to scale. So that that's actually been the greatest tool that we've been able to use to grow. Hmm. And is, and are those grants renewable? I mean, have you established a track record with certain people who are giving you now on a kind of an annual basis because they know what you're about? Absolutely, yeah. Our grants are, we have a great um, group of people. And we've been able to recently now with United Way and Dallas Women's Foundation kind of access sort of the top tier mm-hmm. of um of uh, kind of philanthropic support that's very hard to get, very competitive. And Mm -hmm. I think once you hit that level, just doors open. So we're in a good place um, for raising money, but also again, trying to do a lot of our, um, a lot of our resource strategy is through impact investing. Interesting. Um, Um, Okay, Uh, Casey, go ahead. Yeah, my question. My question is that through this journey of creating a COLA, how has that both shaped and then changed the way that you view one's work or occupation as part of their, their larger vocation, their calling. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's totally intertwined. And I think with what I do, people always ask, they're like, gosh, you work so much. But I'm like, I don't feel like it's work. This is my passion. This mm-hmm. is what I love to do. Um, and it's it's all intertwined. And so um, if I'm working on a Saturday, it doesn't feel like, oh, gosh, I'm working on a Saturday. It's I would rather do this than mm-hmm. most other things, minus being with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also where the balance becomes hard because you're like, my work and my vocation and my calling and my faith, everything is tied together. And so it's really easy to kind of work all the time because mm-hmm. it's it's just your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I also think that's such a gift because I think that's how it's supposed to be. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if we look at different biblical references or what it means to to really live out our vocation and our calling um it's discovering what we were created created for and living that out and i feel like i've used every gift i've i've been given by god in this work every talent i've just pushed it as far as like i can i've i've exhausted every part of myself in this and feel like not only does my my life have meaning but i'm the way I was designed, the way God made me is being fully used. And, um, that's so rewarding. And honestly, there's, there's nothing better than that. The only challenge is again, 
I'm also designed to be a mom to mm-hmm. my little nine month old. So there's that, <laughs> it's not, it's not competing, but, and I hope as he gets older, that becomes more integrated and he becomes a part of what we do. I mean, he goes down to Cola. We have a store on main street, please come see us, mm-hmm. um, near Pecan Lodge. And you know, he'll come down there and get passed around by every staff <laughs> member, all the women, like he's kind of like the community kid. Uh-huh. Um, and I love that. And mm-hmm. so in some ways too, that balance is just the integration of all of your passions. And again, God's in all of that. Now, obviously, your husband, um, can I say, signed on for the ride? <laughs> Y'all can pray for him. <laughs> he, he bears the well, biggest burden. What was, what was that like? I mean, because that's a yeah. huge adjustment for him. Because, I, I, you know, if you weren't expecting what took place, he certainly didn't no. coming in. So Yeah, and we, we got married in 2012 right before everything. I mean, this had been going for a long time, but it really took off, mm-hmm. like, right after that. So he was not signing up for, like, a life of me traveling all the time and working all the time and he does that too so I mean we've had to work through that in Mm -hmm. our marriage and he's really supportive and he knows and and knew from the beginning again we met at my first fundraiser Mm -hmm. he knows I'm called to this and Mm -hmm. he um, he doesn't challenge that which Mm -hmm. is great Um, but yeah I mean how that plays out on a day-to-day basis it's really hard and we've had to have a lot of tough conversations about what happens when we both have to travel I mean his job funds our family. I don't make tons of money from <laughs> yeah. Ecola. So, I mean, yeah. there's that. And, you know, but then, you know, mine's making a difference in a lot of people's lives. So then there's that, you know? And so, um, today's a great example. I normally only work till two o'clock on Tuesdays. Um, so I have a nanny that comes till two and then I'll take late in the afternoon and still try to get some work done. And, um, but today I had a meeting with Neiman Marcus about um, launching one of our collections through them. And then we had this. So he was at, my cousin picked him up from the babysitter. <laughs> my mother-in-law got him from my cousin and Baxter, my husband, is picking him up from my mother-in-law at 645 and then he's going to bed. So days are just like that. And, you know, Baxter's been really patient. But yeah, that isn't easy. And he he bears a lot of the cost, mm-hmm. probably the majority of the cost mm-hmm. of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, financially, I don't, you know, I'm not able to contribute much and yet I work all the time. Um, spiritually, I'm just, I'm pulled in so many directions and emotionally, um, he doesn't get that much. And Mm. so that's been something, um, yeah, he's, he's a great man to have signed up for, for that. Hmm. Now, how often do you, do you travel now to Africa and, and how is that, how's your trips, how have your trips to Africa changed versus when you started? Yeah, so I um I was going once every couple months and now I go I'm trying to go once every six months mm-hmm. just with my son. Um and go for a ten day period. My mom will come here and watch my son and uh, my husband will help with that a lot. And I mean, yeah, I mean the trips now are more um to encourage mm-hmm. to encourage our staff, to encourage the women, to help them know that that I care about them and we care about them over here. And, um, and that's really it. I mean, we have an amazing team on the ground. So yeah, in the beginning I was doing everything in the middle, I was putting out every time there, again, there was a fire. I had to fly to Uganda and solve it, figure it out. I mean, there's no one else to do it. And now, um, I have a team that does that. So mm-hmm. I get to really be, yeah, a, an innovator and an encourager. So I meet with our team and we think about like, what could this be in three years and five years? And we get to dream together and, yeah, I get to just be a champion of them, and that's really fun. And your core team is how large? 30 in Uganda okay. and 15 here. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll go ahead and let you go ahead and ask your question. Um, 
You mentioned in the beginning that the community uh, had a role in, in selecting the women. Mm -hmm. And my question would be, if you wanted to put up the 10th village, mm -hmm. how would you start and what are the, yeah. the way to start? Yeah, so actually, um, we're sort of changing our strategy. Um, and this happened when we expanded to Dallas. Um, when we thought about you know growing our program here, we thought, I mean, there's amazing nonprofits and ministries in our city that have been working with marginalized women for, you know, sometimes a hundred years. Mm -hmm. You know, why would we reinvent the wheel? In Uganda, there's not a lot of organizations in the village we work in that are willing to kind of go into those areas. So we kind of have to do everything. But here, you know, the need was really um, you know, the training and, and the job opportunities for women who, because of their history, can't get a job. And for the nonprofits, their their big dilemma here was, great, we've just rehabilitated this group of women, but they're going to go back into prostitution, back into poverty, back into jail, because they don't have an economic alternative. And so we um, we worked with Serve West Dallas, who's an amazing organization, mm -hmm. um, kind of a collective impact organization um, that brings all of the ministries in West Dallas together. And we said, hey, we can offer 45 women jobs. Um, and they worked with nine nonprofits who sent us women from their program who were ready to work, mm. um, women who are ready to get back on their feet. Um, and so we did that. And then for the women in our distribution center, we partnered with New Friends, New Life, who sends us women for a three-month internship period and then a one-year fellowship. And then we hire them full-time. And um, a lot of times it's the first job they've ever had after mm. um, a lifetime of being incarcerated over and over and over again. So mm. it's a great opportunity for them. And that that's worked so well for us. You know, we thought we've been able to offer something that these nonprofits can't, and that's getting these women back on their feet mm. from their rehabilitation program. And um, in Uganda and, and anywhere we go in the future, it's kind of the same thing. There are other organizations now that we can partner with, like Buckner, mm -hmm. um, who are already providing those services so we can focus on what we're really great at and what other people can't offer, which is the training and employment. So if we ever go to another village, we're looking at Kenya as sort of the next um, place we'd grow in, we would do it alongside a partner like Buckner, um, where they would do all of the holistic hmm. development, even the financial training, business training, and we would go in and do the, um, the basic product training and employment. Hmm. So that's a great question. Yeah. Well, uh, our time has uh, slipped from us very, very quickly, Brittany, but I really appreciate you taking the time to yeah, tell us your you. story. And it's a great story. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a story of profound faith in which um, someone senses a need and basically says, okay, God, stretch me. Yeah. And, uh, um, and the faithfulness comes through, the heart comes through, the ministry impact comes through, and we'll, uh, we'll continue to pray for, for Akola and what's going on. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Thank you. Father, we do thank you for just the beauty of a story of, of simple, energetic, committed, faithful faith. And we lift up Brittany, and we lift up Akola, and we just pray for these women, uh, both here and in Uganda, and pray for the success of the ministry. And we ask that you would continue to lead and guide the team that oversees this, and that you would continue to open doors, and that opportunity would continue to exist to help people um, not only rediscover who they are and, and rebuild their lives, but also come to appreciate uh, what capabilities you give people who sometimes are told that they um, don't matter at all. So we thank you for these many gifts that you give us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you thank so you. much.
Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.